Derivation proceedings were created by the America Invents Act and apply when there are allegations that an individual, having learned of an invention from another, files a patent application claiming the invention as their own. While not as common as post-grant proceedings before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, commonly referred to as the PTAB, derivation proceedings offer nuanced differences that are important to understand. Finnegan Associate Sidney Kessel and Finnegan Partners Tim McAnulty and Jeff Totten join us now to discuss these nuances. Jeff, what options exist for companies that discover someone has filed an application for intellectual property that the company's inventors developed? There are several options available to companies and the best response may depend on the facts of the case and the relationship between that company and the party who filed the patent application. Where there's an existing relationship, such as an employer-employee relationship, or vendor-customer relationship, or a collaboration agreement between the parties, they may have several options. The first, and the one we'll talk about today, is derivation proceeding at the U.S. Patent Office. But many companies also consider suit for a breach of contract with the other party or a suit for theft of trade secrets with the other party. And they look at what contractual obligations and opportunities there are to resolve the dispute through those other means. Tim, can you explain derivation proceedings and how they compare to other post-grant proceedings? Procedurally, they're most like IPRs, PGRs, and CBMs. They include a petition, an institution decision, briefing, oral argument, and a final decision. However, aspects of interference practices are involved, like the need to show claim correspondence, for example, showing that a petitioner's claim is the same as a respondent's claim, and they also include periods of repose or limits on when a derivation can be filed after claims become public, just like in interferences. While derivations effectively replaced interferences, they're effectively limited to determining originality, that is, who actually invented the claimed subject matter, not who invented the subject matter first. And they also draw on a lot of law that was already developed through interferences with respect to claim correspondence and originality. And derivations begin when a party files a petition asking the PTAP to institute a proceeding. Unlike post-grant proceedings, the respondent does not have an opportunity to respond to the petition before the PTAB makes that institution decision. And the requirements for the derivation petition are different from post-grants. The derivation petition needs to make a showing that the petitioner has a claim that is the same or substantially the claim as the respondent. The petition also has to show that the conflicting claims are directed to the same subject matter, and that's going to entail exercise of claim construction and, and claim correspondence. And the petition must also allege that the overlapping subject matter was actually the subject matter that was communicated from the petitioner to the respondent and that that respondent filed a patent application on that subject matter without authorization from the petitioner. Sydney, at what point does it make sense to file for a derivation proceeding? There are statutory limits placed on when petitions can be filed, and those statutory limits will necessarily influence a party's filing strategy. By statute, a derivation petition must be filed within one year after a claim is patented or published. This one-year time bar is relatively straightforward for patented claims because those claims cannot change, but it becomes more complex for published claims because those often change during prosecution. So for that category of petitioners, you have to consider couple of things. First, when the claim was first published, 
including whether it was published in an earlier parent application, and if the allegedly derived claims are the same or substantially the same as the published claims, which they might be if they were only mildly amended during prosecution, or they might not be if they were more substantially amended during prosecution. On the latter category, the claims are patently distinct and the one-year bar might not be triggered. Ultimately, it's the petitioner's burden to show that its petition has been timely filed. This timing question implicates a few considerations. It usually requires diligence in monitoring a competitor's patents, which a lot of companies already do, and also swift action when potentially conflicting patent application is discovered. Ultimately, there is some balance between filing a petition early when broad published claims may be clearly unpatentable, when there is a chance that those claims may significantly change during prosecution, and balancing that against the importance of the subject matter and the relationship that the petitioner may have with the respondent. For example, is the respondent a former employee or is there some other trade secret concern, as Jeff mentioned earlier? Tim, what evidence is needed for initiating this type of proceeding? A derivation proceeding is a relatively evidence-heavy proceeding. At least one affidavit from a fact witness is needed when the petition is filed and that affidavit needs to set forth facts that will tend to show that the invention that was claimed and is disputed was actually communicated to the respondent. In addition to that affidavit, corroborating evidence like correspondence, lab notebooks, meeting notes, and other affidavits from other witnesses will likely also be needed. Evidence is also needed to show the subject matter communicated is the same as the subject matter in the respondent's claims and the same as the subject matter in the petitioner's claims. That is, evidence will be needed to show that what was communicated is actually what's being claimed by the respective parties. This may include a combination of affidavits from both fact and expert witnesses. Although there haven't been many derivations based on the ones we've seen, the BTAB seems to be focusing in on evidence submitted by petitioners and it has really dug into what the details are of the invention that was communicated and what is being claimed. The PTAB has expressly explained in a few decisions that it won't make assumptions that the challenged claims are the same or substantially the same as the invention that's either being challenged by the petitioner or claimed by the respondent. In a way, generalizations of the invention and the level of communication and the details of the invention that was communicated are not likely to carry the day, and in a way, the devil is really in the details. Sydney, which remedy makes the most sense for petitioners to request? So there are several remedies provided both for by statute, and the desired relief may depend upon the status of the parties, so whether the first filer is a patentee or an applicant, and whether the respondent's application is prior art to the petitioner's application. So, for example, one available remedy is to potentially amend the inventorship of the respondent's application. This might be a desired solution in order to find an earlier priority date. Another available remedy is to seek final refusal of the claims in the respondent's application. This may be desired if the petitioner would like a different claim scope than what's provided for in the respondent's application. Another available remedy is to seek cancellation of the claims in the respondent's patent if the patent has already issued. The last two remedies are similar to the relief that's available in interference proceedings. In addition to beyond those statutory remedies, parties can also seek settlement or to submit to arbitration to resolve any inventorship dispute. It ultimately depends on the specific business goals that the various parties have in mind. Jeff, how can a company avoid or minimize the risk of future derivation proceedings? 
There are three areas that companies should consider when they're thinking about their relationships with their employees and with their collaborators and with their customers or vendors. First, they should look to make sure that they have clear agreements regarding the ownership of intellectual property and its protection, looking at things like non-disclosure agreements and the terms of their licenses who owns intellectual property rights under joint development agreements, and also the employment agreements that they enter with their employees all will serve the desire to be prepared for potential disputes down the road. Second, it's important to educate employees and partners of expectations regarding intellectual property and ownership of intellectual property. This is kind of an ongoing effort One can imagine an employee who is hired by a company and then years later decides they want to file their own patent application based on work they've done while employed by the company. Ongoing education efforts can dissuade the employee from making that filing in the first place, which may be preferable to an ex-post attempt to claw that information back via derivation proceeding, which is in the public record. Third, companies should consider their efforts to document their technological developments, their inventions, and their trade secrets, as well as document the disclosures of those pieces of technology to other partners or employees. You know, as Tim mentioned, the communication of an invention to the party who files a patent application is a central piece of evidence in a derivation proceeding, and it can be important that the development of that invention and its disclosure, its communication, are well documented in case a dispute comes up up front. So companies want to look at their agreements, look at their ongoing efforts to educate their partners and employees, and also look to document the technology that they develop. And finally, Jeff, there have been very few actual derivation proceedings filed. Why is that? We've only seen a handful filed each year since the the proceedings have been available. We can see several reasons why that may be the case. First, the timing requirements are fairly strict. A party only has one year to file a derivation after the publication of the application reciting claims that they feel relate to their own. While one year seems like a long time, often if a party only becomes aware of the publication Soon before that year closes, they may need to make a quick decision as to whether a derivation proceeding makes sense. Second, the evidentiary requirements that Tim mentioned earlier can be exacting, showing that an invention was disclosed to the other party and communicated to the other party may prove challenging for some potential derivation complainants. Third, there's a sense that these proceedings are a bit of uncharted territory for people considering filing a derivation proceeding. As we've discussed, there have been a few filed to date, only one that has reached final decision, and that one in the year 2019. In some cases, companies may prefer to address these situations through private means, letters and agreements with former employees or partners who filed patent applications or through other settlement options rather than being the first to file a derivation and go through the process. Our guests have been Sidney Kessel, Tim McAnulty, and Jeff Totten, attorneys at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, 
to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.